All right, well, uh, keep your Bibles uh, open in John. That's where we'll be spending most of our time. Uh, the Genesis text will serve as a bit of uh, background. Uh, we could have read all of Genesis 1, but I thought I'd pick out the verses where we see light. Because, um, well, it's that, kind of, it's that time of year, isn't it? It's the time of year that's all about lights. I'm sure many of us have lights on our houses, lights on our trees. Uh, it's light outside from, you know, 5am to 8pm. And then the shops are still open and lit up after the sun goes down. Everywhere you go, it's just lights, lights, lights. But Christmas is really meant to be focused on one particular light. Uh, not a light that you'll find in the shops uh, or in the sky uh, or even on your house, but rather a light in the form of a person. So we're going to be spending this morning, next Sunday morning, and more casually at our Christmas Day breakfast, thinking about Jesus as light to us. And this morning we're starting out with Jesus, as John says here, as the light of life for all mankind. Now that's a big claim. Uh, you might have heard it at some point a friend or colleague or family member uh, talk about the light of their life. You know, someone really special to them. Someone who just makes everything about life better, more worth living. And it feels like John is saying that about Jesus in this passage. That for everyone, for all mankind, Jesus is the light of our life. But it also seems like he's saying more than that, doesn't it? Uh, this passage is a good introduction to the way John writes. He loves using metaphor and symbolism. And the main metaphor he uses in this passage is light. And it's a symbol he comes to throughout the book of John, throughout his gospel. Next time you read John, keep an eye out for light and dark, day and night throughout the story. As you do, you'll notice a pattern. When Jesus is present and understood for who he is, it'll be light, it'll be daytime. But when he's absent or not understood, it's dark, it's night. So this opening passage from John is him wanting us to know from the start who Jesus is, how important Jesus is, that Jesus is light to us and he gives us that light through the life that is in him. But the question that leaves us with this morning is this, what is that life? It's a nice metaphor, saying that Jesus is true light and he gives us light and that life is the light, that light is the life that is in him. But what does that really mean? Well, I want to suggest this morning that John is pointing us in this passage to three ways that we find life in Jesus, that he is light to us. And the first of these is that we find life in him from the creator. And for us to understand that, we have to go back to the beginning, to the beginning of this passage of John's gospel and to the beginning of the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
uh, even in our increasingly illit biblically illiterate culture, I think there's still a decent amount of recognition of that phrase as some quote from the Bible. Now, it's not the most famous verse of Scripture, but I reckon it's in the top ten. And if that's true for us, well, it was much more true for John and his contemporaries, Jews living 2,000 years ago. In fact, in Hebrew, the name of the book of Genesis is Bereshit, which means in the beginning. It's the very first word of the Hebrew Bible. So, in the beginning, Bereshit was a phrase full of meaning to the Jews. It was the beginning of the Scriptures, the beginning of the world, the beginning of our understanding of who God is and the story of everything He's done. So, when John starts his book, his gospel, his story, with the very same words, in the beginning, it's like he's signposting to his readers that this is about God. I am telling you again the story of the world from creation. Quite literally, whatever he's about to say next is God, right? In the beginning, God created. Those are the words everyone knows. And what does he say? In the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Hey, what's going on here? Now, in Greek, which uh, the New Testament was written in, uh, the word for word is logos. And Logos was understood by philosophers to be a way of understanding the divine. They would say that you can know what God or the gods think or believe or want through what they tell you, through their Logos. So most non-Jews reading this would have heard of this idea and when John writes about the Logos, they would see the link with the word being God and revealing the divine will. But for Jews, like John, who would know all that, it had more meaning. Because when they looked at their Scriptures, they kept seeing the Word of the Lord. Over and over again, this phrase, the Word of the Lord, appears throughout the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And often it's a way of saying that God is speaking with His divine authority. We even saw that, didn't we, in Genesis 1. God speaks and the world comes into being. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let there be lights in the sky to separate the day from night, and it was so. God brought the world and the universe into being by the power of the Word of the Lord, the Logos of the Lord. But there's still more to the picture. Now, because we have the New Testament, we know uh, from the revelation of Jesus that God is Trinity, one being three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We even saw the Spirit in Genesis 1 verse 2, hovering over the waters. But while this wasn't entirely clear to ancient Jews, many of them did recognise 
that although there is clearly one God, there's something unusual in the way God presents himself in certain passages of Scripture. Almost like there's two powers in heaven. There's God, and then there's this other figure who goes by different names, but always has the attributes of God. Often he's the angel of the Lord, but sometimes he has other names. And one of those is the word of the Lord. For example, in 1 Kings 19, where the prophet Elijah meets God, we read in verse 9, uh, this is from the ESV, which brings out the Hebrew better, Elijah came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, this he could just be God as he speaks, but the passage is almost deliberately vague, as though the he could be the word of the Lord as a person. He continues in verse 11, and he said to Elijah, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. Not go out and stand before me, but before the Lord. And then after Elijah does this, he he eventually hears a voice that is God speaking to him, which says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Which is what the word of the Lord had said separately just before. It's a bit unusual. So this was the kind of passage that made many ancient Jews see this other person who is God present in the Scriptures. Which means when John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, that is not a coincidence. He's not just drawing on a metaphorical or philosophical idea. He's drawing on the Scriptures. He's saying, yes, that's right. The Word of the Lord is another person that is the one and the same God we worship. And what does he say to drive the point home? Verse 3, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. It's as though he's saying the Word is there as God, crafting whatever the Lord commands. We, we might say God the Father speaks, and in an instant God the Son, the Word, has made it so. And I'm using this imagery of crafting deliberately because one of the other names given to this Word in the Old Testament is wisdom. In Proverbs 8, this figure known as wisdom says in verse 22, again using the ESV here, the Lord fathered me at the beginning of his work. Wisdom is fathered, begotten by God, before creation. Hopefully this is ringing a bell. Verses 23 to 29 in that passage are then all about how wisdom was present before the creation of the world, how he was there before all things. And then in verse 30, he says, I was beside him, God, like a master workman or craftsman. Wisdom, eternally begotten by God, was with God at his side and like a master workman looking over creation. So when you read John 1, verses 1 to 3, this is the kind of thing John is pointing us to. This is who the Word is. 
And it's also the kind of thing the Apostle Paul reminds us of in Colossians 1, verses 15 to 17, where he says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That is who the Word is. That's who Jesus is. John wants us to know this. Jesus is the Creator. What did he make? Everything. From the elephant to the ant, from gases to gold, earth, sea, sky, everything that has been made has been made by Jesus, including us. And when it comes to us humans, he didn't just make us as another of his creatures, he made us in his image. That's what we saw in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Us, the triune God, making us humans to be like Him. We are special to Him. We are chosen as His precious creation, as the unique reflections of who He is. Not even the heavenly hosts, the angels, not even they're given that privilege. We are unlike anything in all creation. Our life comes from Him. Our life comes from God alone, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Without God the Son being before creation, we are literally nothing. We don't exist. Nothing exists without Him crafting it into being. No wonder John says that the life in Jesus is the light of all mankind. It's very literally true. But there's more to the story. Because if that's it, we could just say, okay, so, you know, God the Son, wisdom, the Word, the one who is God but is separate to God, He created the world alongside the Father and the Spirit. He created you and me in His image. Our life is from Him. So what? If he's done all those things and just, you know, left us to our own devices, well, then it doesn't really matter how amazing creation is. We can just, you know, enjoy it and be left alone, right? But John doesn't leave it there. He doesn't say, hey, God is multi-personal and he made you the end. He goes bigger. Because the second way we see life in Jesus is that he became human. He joined in our life. He didn't just create us and leave us alone. He became one of us, one of his own creation. In verse 6, we're told that there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Uh, this isn't the writer John the Apostle, it's the other one, John the Baptist. Uh, this John testifies to the light, but isn't himself the light. And in verse 15, we're told what he's testifying. 
He says, this, Jesus, is the one that I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. The word, the light, comes into the world after John, but he's greater than John because he was present before John, before the creation of the world. He is, verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone who is coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And just in case we think that maybe, you know, he wasn't recognised because uh, he was in an unknowable form or something, John makes plain how the Word entered the world. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. God the Son took on flesh. The one who made humans in his image came into the world as a human. And he wasn't recognised. What's going on? How does that work? How can we not recognise the one whose image we're made in? It kind of reminds me of that old story of Charlie Chaplin entering a Charlie Chaplin look-alike contest and coming third. You think, how does that work? But then you think about it a bit more, and it does make sense if the image you have of someone in your head does not match who they really are. Even God himself won't be recognised if we don't know who he is, if we don't have a right image of him in our head. We're told that Jesus is the creator God and that he entered into the world as a human. That's the story of Christmas. It's the story John and John want everyone to know. They testify that this man, Jesus, is God in the flesh. But maybe we just can't picture that. Maybe we find it objectionable. Some would say that there is no way for a human to be God. Maybe Jesus was just a good moral teacher or a prophet or something. The problem with that, though, is that he certainly thought he was God. That was the image he had of himself. He continually had to dodge stones uh, because they were being thrown at him for blasphemy because he kept claiming to be God. He did things that only God could do, calming a storm, bringing the dead back to life, healing paralysis, casting out demons. The apostles, the disciples, they all testified, as John and John do, that he was God. They testified that what they saw and heard left them in no doubt that Jesus was far more than just a teacher or prophet. Others might say it's impossible for God to become a human. It's insulting even. How could the almighty God lower himself to be a mere creature? But this doesn't match with who God shows himself to be either. For one thing, if God is the almighty creator God, how can he be restricted by our logic trying to bar him from entering his own creation? He's entered his own creation since Genesis, since the beginning. He created logic. 
But more than that, look at his character. God is a loving God, as we've sung about and spoke about already this morning. John, writing in his first letter, puts it plainly, God is love. What love is can only be understood by looking at who God is. And God loves us. We are his beloved creation. He shows us this love for humanity by choosing humility. Through God the Son coming from heaven, from ruling over all existence, down to earth to live out a plain, simple existence as a man who chose to come down and understand what it's like to live with our weaknesses, our temptations, our difficulties as humans. The almighty craftsman chose to live in a rural backwater as another kind of craftsman, a carpenter. And when the time was right, he set about healing the sick, feeding the hungry, teaching the masses, never sinning, always doing things the way God commanded, full of love for others, doing what was best for them, regardless of who they were. As John puts it in this passage twice, he was full of grace and truth. He lived his life on earth as a light to us, showing us what God's goodness looks like, showing us that God cares about his creation, showing us what it is to live in the way that God has set out for us. Paul says it so well in that famous passage in Philippians 2 from verse 5, where he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And this brings us to the third way that Jesus is the light of life for all mankind in this passage. Giving his life for us as our saviour. We'll think more on this next week, but uh, the main way that Jesus was not received by his people in his time was in his being a saviour. Israel had been expecting a Messiah to come, a saviour sent by God, and many thought God himself would somehow be that Messiah. But the salvation they expected was of the restoration of the kingdom of Israel on earth, that the Messiah would come to fight and defeat the Romans. So when this poor carpenter from Nazareth starts preaching about forgiveness starts railing against the religious authorities for the way they were disobeying God, starts associating with sinners, 
and does all these miraculous works and claims to be God by overriding the Sabbath and forgiving sins. That's not what the Messiah was meant to be. The image didn't fit. So they rejected him. But while his own did not receive him, verse 12, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Uh, if lights are one of the main things we associate with Christmas, then surely uh, children are not far behind. Kids go on school holidays and receive presents. And more importantly, uh, we celebrate Jesus born as a baby in Bethlehem. But why would John think it's important for us to be children of God? It's the centre point of this introduction to Jesus, that those who accept Jesus become children of God. Why would he put it there? Why does it matter? It matters because being God's children is what we were always meant to be since the creation of the world. If you've got children here, take a look at them. Easy for you to do, Mum. <laughs> Whose image do they bear? Oh, the image of their biological parents. Who created them? So if God created all of humanity and we all bear his image, then what does that make us by nature? children of God. But when sin entered the world in the garden and we all inherited that sin, it was us rejecting God as our Father. The rightful relationship we had with God was severed, torn apart. Pain and death comes into the world. But even so, God still loves us. It had only been after creating humans that God looked at everything he had made and saw that it was very good. It was complete. It was done. We are God's magnum opus, made to be his children, to be a way in which he can display his glory, his pride and joy. So how, in his love for us, could he leave us to wander away from him towards destruction forever? He couldn't. In his justice, he cannot abide sin, but in his love, he can't leave us alone. So the Father sends the Son into the world in order that the Son can enable us to be adopted as children of God. Despite our sin, despite our ripping up the relationship, Jesus wants us to be co-heirs with him to all creation. At his side, just as he was at the Father's side in making us. God wants us to know him like he knows us. He wants us to know that he gave his 
us his life. He lived our life and he saved our life. If only we accept him into it. The Father sends Jesus, verse 18, because no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Jesus shares himself with us, is in relationship with us, so that we can be restored to relationship with God. He wants us to see the light, so to speak, and come back to him. That's the kind of saviour, the kind of Messiah that the Son came into the world to be. Not just a saviour for Israel, but for the whole world. Israel received the law, as John says in verse 17, and that was a grace to them, a temporary way to point them to God's saving grace but it was only in Jesus that they and all mankind could truly receive salvation. Grace upon grace, true life. The message, the truth that Jesus came to preach was of his own death and resurrection to save people from sin and give them eternal life, provided, as John says, that they trust in him. And then in his grace, he did exactly that. He went to die on a cross, taking the sins of the world on his shoulders. He gave us life by giving up his life as a human for our sake. But because he's not just a human, but also God, death could not defeat him. And he rose from the dead and not long afterwards ascended into heaven. And if we trust in him, then we too will one day be resurrected and enter into eternity at his side. Jesus brought grace and truth. The grace of salvation in his death and resurrection. The truth in his message of forgiveness of sins. And through that grace and that truth we can find life in him. Because he gave us his life in creation. He came to live a life among us on this earth. And he chose to give up his life so that all who accept him might have eternal life with him. That is how we find life in him. That is the Jesus who is true light to all mankind. That is who we're celebrating at Christmas. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us in Jesus for showing us that you are our loving Father who created us in your image to be your children. Thank you, Jesus, for the way you crafted us alongside your Father, giving us life. 
We are sorry, Lord, for our sin, for our rebellion against you. But Lord Jesus, you didn't leave us alone. For in your love, you chose to enter creation, to become one of us, born into this world, growing up among us, living as a human. You showed us what humility looks like, taking yourself from glory to come to earth and serve others. So we thank you, Father, for sending your Son into this world, not just to live our life, but also to die our death on the cross. Thank you that in your love for us, you made a way for us to have a restored relationship with you, giving up your son so that we could be adopted to sonship alongside him in glory. Thank you, Jesus, that we can have eternal life in you, that you are a light for all mankind because all of us can trust in you and have true life. Lord, help us by your spirit to accept this, to know this truth, to know the truth of your grace to us so that we may live for your glory always. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.